Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Sakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Zakari. Good morning. My name is Frank Zakari. This is Life Altering Events. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today is my last radio show. This show is my first venture into the media world, and I am so honored that nearly 220,000 people in 42 countries took time out of your busy lives to listen to me, a new guy in this medium. It's been my pleasure, an absolute pleasure, to share with you these past 69 weeks the stories from my guests, all who faced a major life-altering event that dramatically changed the trajectory of their lives. Yet when faced with these life-altering moments, they did not give up, they did not lose hope, they did not fall into the pit of despair. Everyone found a way to summon every ounce of strength and courage. They picked up the pieces, they kept moving forward. In every case, every case, they discovered a better and more fulfilling life after this event that they thought was going to shatter their life. Now, I've received many emails from around the world sharing how much a particular story touched your heart or motivated you or inspired you or let you know you're not in this alone. I hope we showed you that no matter what you're going through in your personal or your professional life, you're not alone. And you can draw on the strength of Steve Zakari, who built his life after he was told he might live five years after his horrific accident. Or Mel Robbins, who created her best-selling book, The Five-Second Rule, when she was facing bankruptcy and divorce. Or Sarah Pizak and Dean Eller, who both shared their heartbreaking stories of their daughter's courageous battles with leukemia and the, some of the steps that they've done since the death of their children. In Dean Eller's case, forming the Blood Center in Fresno, Fresno, California, and in Sandra's case, Sandra Pizak, she set up a leukemia march every year in honor of her daughter, Sarah. We heard from veterans like Dr. Vanette Joseph and Julio Alvarado, who told us that PTSD is not a sign of weakness, and it is also not limited to the military. We discussed the devastating impact COVID is having on our mental health. And we heard from counselors like Annette Zakari, Jackie Simmons, Kellyanne Wild, who told us where we can go to seek help. Tasha Harper showed us how to reinvent your mindset after a divorce. Connie Bremer showed us how courage, love, and humor helped her beat breast cancer. Belinda Farrell let us know that fear is not an invincible opponent. And today, on our last show, 
Sarah McVannell will tell us the importance of recognizing the goodness in ourselves and in others. Now, there have been so many other guests I just don't have the time to mention. But thank you to all of you, all the guests who are on this show, who are willing to share your story about the most difficult times in your life with the world. Now, to the listeners in the United States, particularly in the areas of Richardson, Texas, Redmond, Washington, Mountain View in Palo Alto, California, New York City, Atlanta, and a little county in Nevada, Harump County. They were the largest share of listeners over the 69 weeks in those cities and areas. And thank you to all the international listeners, particularly the large following we had in China, Mexico, Ireland, India, and Germany. Thank you to VoiceAmerica.com, particularly, particularly the production and the engineering crew who made the magic happen so that I could share all these inspiring stories all over the world. Now, while this is my last radio show, life-altering events is not going away. We live in a video world, and the show is moving to Roku Television starting in December or maybe January. The details are still being worked out as to when the start date will be. I hope you'll continue to follow me. You can connect with me and stay in touch through LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm easy to find. It's my name, Frank Zakari. And I'll connect with you and I will keep you posted as to how and when you can watch Life Altering Event on TV or on YouTube. I hope you continue to follow me in this journey together and I hope you'll continue to send me your stories that we can share with the world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today's show is about finding the silver lining. Now, I'm going to start the show with a shameless self-promotion. I've written my seventh book, which is just entering the publishing process. And the book is called The Secret to Walking on Water is to Know Where the Rocks Are. And hopefully in two months or so, the book will be available. Now, this is a guide for every entrepreneur or anyone who leads an organization. As I discovered over 30 years in business, success doesn't come from working harder or working smarter. It's not what you know that's going to determine success or failure. It's more about what you don't know. What you know is not nearly as important as who you know. The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. Now, too many of us in business or running organizations, we sink because we don't know where the rocks are. Now, this guide will help prepare you for what you don't know so you're not blindsided as you move down the path. That's enough of the shameless self-promotion. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend Dr. Temple Hayes often says, we long to have a message and an understanding of life that allows us to be heard, recognized, and discovered for who we truly are. Now, what's she saying here? Well, in short, she's saying everybody wants to be appreciated. Pretty basic stuff, right? Yet, why are we having so much depression and anxiety and stress? Why are nearly 84% of workers not engaged? Why is our world being divided into us versus them? There are three things I learned many years ago that make a major impact in someone's personal and professional life. And this is it. I see you. I hear you. 
you matter. Eight words. Those eight words can change your life, your organization, and ultimately, it will change the world. Now, why is this so hard? I wish I had an answer for this. I don't. However, my guest today, Sarah McVannell, a recognition expert, will share with us how we can rediscover our own greatness and recognize the greatness in others. Let me tell you something about Sarah before we bring her in. Sarah helps organizations leverage the exponential power of recognition to retain top talent and delight customers. That's a great line. That's what we all want. We want delighted customers. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology. She has a master's in family relations, and she is certified in human resources, organizational development, and coaching. She's also one of 1,500 people worldwide with a CSP, and that is a certified speaking professional. She's the author of peer-reviewed journals, articles, and she herself has written five books. Now, we pre-recorded this conversation with Sarah, so now our engineers will play this for you. Please listen. Sarah McVannell is worth your time and effort. Sarah, welcome to Life Altering Events. Oh, thank you, Frank. I, I love what you're doing in the world where you're helping us lean into the events that seem perhaps in the moment, like it's not a healthy, happy, uh, you know, enriching life altering event. And it maybe it in fact is is the pivot point that we really needed. So thrilled to Absolutely. be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Sarah's coming all the way from Ontario, Canada, not far from Buffalo, New York, where I grew up. Yeah. So we can relate weather-wise. Oh, we can relate. I, I spent many a shopping trip over in Buffalo, New York, uh, filling up my back-to-school wardrobe. So I've been in, I've been, we probably were in Buffalo at the same time. Very, very, very good chance we were. Now, Sarah, everybody wants to be appreciated and recognized. It's, it's just a basic value. Everybody wants to have value. Why do so many organizations struggle with this very basic human concept? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in having worked in organizational development for 20 years and, and having very um, uh, challenging sometimes conversations with people after a keynote or in, in coaching, um, what I've come to realize is that the skills and the strategies that work for us when we were knee-high to a grasshopper, as my, my uh, grandmother used to say, we think that those are not professional skills. If I didn't have to study it in a textbook, pass it on an exam, uh, put it on my resume or my LinkedIn profile, then it's not as valuable. And we've been we've been re being recognized, recognizing other people since we were tiny. So all of a sudden, we think that that's just soft, as if soft is a bad thing in our in our workplaces, which we know emotional intelligence. There's so much research to show us that that is a game changer in our success. But recognition is still one of those things that we think is a nice to have, not a need to have. Um, happy to share with you the data and the research otherwise, but let me just bottom line it this way. What you, how you just started our conversation is exactly what Brene Brown describes as human connection. Mm -hmm. Her definition of connection, which I so love, is that the connection is the energy that is created when people are seen, heard, and valued. And I think we can all agree that whether you are across the digital divide or you're in the same room with people, 
every single person needs to be connected to other people. We're hardwired for connection. It's, it's us as a human species. So we need to pursue it relentlessly and, and vivaciously in order to be successful in our lives and professionally. I love what you said, Sarah, about soft. Mm-hmm. And I've even interviewed someone who said, the big thing now is soft skills. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's nothing soft about these skills. No. Is that right? It's, it's often what people struggle with. They are hired and promoted for technical capability. I have at least on a weekly basis, somebody will ask me a question about how do I support my incredibly talented, technically competent people lead more effectively and more confidently. And that's because we've somewhere along the line forgot to help folks evolve that quote soft um, aspect of leading and and, and being frankly likable and great contributors in their, in their own way. When I was coming up, one of the things, that was exactly how it was. I was mm-hmm. very good at this. Okay, mm-hmm. so now we're gonna make you a manager. Right. We're training, or, or worse yet, the training was you go away for a week and you get a fire hose and you forget 99% of it before you go home. Now you have a training program. And I love the turn the name, F-R-O-G, Frog. Yeah. Yeah. What you use. Could you explain that? How does that work? Well, I like to uh, go up to perfect strangers and say, have you been frogged lately? And uh, you could probably imagine the reaction. Yes, one of the reactions is laughing. Another one is a very strange look of concern that, you know, I just hope they're not going to call security in that moment. But, you know, it's to shock people into just waking up in that moment. And then I'll quickly say frog stands for forever recognize others' greatness. And the greatness I want to recognize in you is... I have seen beefy, you know, security guards have a tear trickle down their eye to the the Starbucks or Tim Hortons in Canada professionals mm-hmm. saying, oh, my gosh, nobody's ever acknowledged that in me before. And, you know, and even these senior executive say, you know, I just realized in this moment, I don't think anyone has acknowledged me in the last year because we that's the one of the loneliest jobs we can have is being exactly yeah so every single person needs it and and forever recognize others greatness allows us to see the extraordinary that we miss in our ordinary lives work lives personal lives you know my kids this weekend were struggling both of them were experiencing some negative follow to social media one of them was protecting somebody else who's being bullied on social media the other one was getting bullied and and we we worked it out. I'm mommy therapist at home. We kind of worked it out. They went, we were able to go to bed okay. And I thought, you know, I don't think my work here is quite done. So I texted them from my bedroom. Um, I could have gone to their rooms, but I wanted it to be available for them to see later. And I said, here's the five things that I really like about you. I didn't say love because love kids and anyone who's in your life, you think they have to love me, but right. they don't have to like me. Right. Five things I like about you. And I listed them and each one, it was different because I did it for the one that I think was emotionally most vulnerable. And I thought, you know what? I think my other child would benefit from this too. And what they, what I got back was, you don't know how much I needed to hear this. And, and you think about that. I mean, that is probably somebody who, you know, thinks you're great and will always be in your corner. But imagine if we did that in our workplaces 
You know, three things I really like about you, Frank. One is you're organized. You let me know that this event was coming, this this call was coming at multiple times. You are great at preparation. You care very deeply about the quality of this session, this this uh, this event, this educational event we have here. And you prepared an amazing introduction. And three, you're confident in what the value you offer the world. You've written six books and you said it's a shameless plug. It was a really helpful introduction to what you're doing in the world. So, I mean, I see your greatness. Has anyone told you that lately? I mean, imagine if we were able to walk around the world believing that it is my job to recognize people, see the ordinary, the extraordinary in those ordinary moments and tell somebody in case they missed it and they're not having a good day or if they're having a great day to remind them of why they're having a great day. I just think that beyond, it, it's way bigger than a program. Yes, I teach people and I do speeches and all of that stuff. And what makes me most excited are things like in my inbox, um, a leader that I taught years ago sent me a message. He said, did you know in Canada, or in Ontario, it's, it's Caregiver's Appreciation Day. In other words, people mm-hmm. who babysit little tiny children. And she said, here's our frog campaign for this year. You know, Frank, there isn't a better compliment I could have received professionally that week than somebody telling me that years later, every single year, they focus on how they frog people. And they had these little beautiful little frog things, you know, created and a little handwritten note. That's what it's about, my friend, about people going out and taking what they've learned and feeling so motivated, inspired to see, hear and value people's greatness that they never, it's not just a lesson. That's what makes it not soft because it's an action. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Sarah, I was a, I was a corporate CEO for, for, for many, many years. Yeah. And I would go to events, not as good as yours, but I would go to these kind of events. <laughs> this was a long time ago, right? Where they were trying to, and it's a lifestyle change. It's not one-time thing. So right. you meet with a CEO. They say, Sarah, I love this. I'm going to implement it. They go back to their office. They got 500 emails and 1,600 voicemail messages, and they fall right back into the old pattern. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that? Yeah, such a great point. Well, number one is remember that it, although you are perhaps the buck stops with you, you have an army of recruiters. You have an army of advocates in your organization. So, so bring your converted with you. You know what I think we need more of? I think we need to make sure every single day, every single person around here feels seen, heard, and valued. How could we make that happen? So it's almost like indoctrinating people to your recognition philosophy. You don't have to do it all your own. Find out what the best ideas are. Ask people, how are we already doing this? Where are there pockets of the organization where it's happening without us even having to do anything differently? In other words, it's it's the concept of um, positive deviance. Let's find where the exception exists of that's working well, study it and do more of it, you know, and really feed into that, acknowledge those folks. And then also make infinitesimal changes. So it's like getting 1% better. The author James Clear of Atomic Habits talks about right. forming new habits is about 1% better every day. So if 1% better looks like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a thank you card every day. Or I'm going to text somebody that they saw something great. I'm going to have more smiles and thumbs up at meetings. I'm going to start with feedback, start by saying, you know, what I see in your development and your growth over time is fill in the blank there and then get back to the project at hand. 
So there's little, and it has to be what works for that individual. So make it a peer-to-peer in a, in a group effort, not just on your shoulders, busy CEO. And mm-hmm. remember, the power of recognition is that you feel better, they feel better, and then anyone around you who either experiences it or hears about it, there's a third party invested in recognition. Mm-hmm. And that is that that um, an observer that you don't even know is out there paying attention. And let's face it, you probably saw many times as a CEO, people are really paying attention to what you're doing and you're not doing. So remember, you can create an exponential effect by, by just simply engaging in the intention and seeing how that, how that ripple effect happens for the giver, the receiver, and the observer. I love that statement. That, that is outstanding. Now, when I, again, back to my, uh, there's still a lot of CEOs my age out there, right? <laughs> and both you and our friend Nicole Bendele mm-hmm. preach and believe in the importance of frequent feedback. Yes. Now, when I was coming up, feedback was very rarely positive. It was mm-hmm. more, this is what we did wrong, this is what you need to work on, as opposed to this is what you did well. Now, it's changing, thank God. But how do you suggest feedback be given, and how often? Yeah. Well, um, you can be very stealth in it and and surprise people. One, my business mentor, Kim Shepard, who grew a multi-million dollar recruitment company, um, she would make recognition, um, you know, she would focus on how to make it surprising. So at, let's say, an annual event, um, she'd come in dressed in a costume or she would have people come in. And if you're, if you're you teach Pilates, she'd have that person come in and teach Pilates to the group and they'd hand out, you know, fun, quirky awards. And it was all serious. But she said it takes a lot more effort to surprise people. Just like saying randomly saying to somebody, I want to frog you. It's surprising. So we got to jar people out of our status quo, our put up of life. Only 30% of people are truly satisfied, engaged at work. So we can just give a little jolt by giving recognition. The other you know, thing about feedback is we have a hard time receiving compliments and, and therefore we have a hard time giving them. So not being, not having any conditions on the outcome of the compliment you give is one way to get over ourselves when it comes to giving positive feedback. If your intention is to simply put out an acknowledgement to the world because you know it to be true and you don't have to have somebody be able to receive it allows you to do it a lot more. In fact, from people who really struggle with this, we heard loud and clear of lots of leaders in our training. Um, and because when I say our Forever Recognize Others Greatness came out of the work that I did with a colleague that used to report to me, Brenda Zalterminden, who's amazing. Um, and we realized how just getting that first next step was tricky for people who hadn't grown up with being acknowledged or giving in that feedback culture. So we created feedback cards. They're they're called frog tributes. And we're like, okay, if we gave you the thing, we actually surveyed people and we said, what's the best compliment you could ever receive? And we narrowed it down to 52. We put them on cards. They're actually like on in a deck of cards. People buy it as a deck of cards. And we said, put three in your pocket. Now, this was when we were all physically together. But even if it's virtual, you can still put three in your pocket and take a picture and send it to people. Your job by the end of the day, we would say to busy CEOs, executives, middle managers, is to get rid of your three cards. 
That's it. You just hand it to somebody. People will, I mean, you don't even know it's on the card and you're already smiling, right, Frank? Yeah. Imagine if all of a sudden, sudden you received a card in passing in the hall or slipped to you at, during a meeting that says, I'm comfortable just being quiet with you. Like, how would that change you, that moment for you? Like, imagine if you all of a sudden received that. It's a high-pressure meeting. You've got a back-to-back meetings. You've barely gone to the bathroom, let alone eaten something. And you all of a sudden, your, your colleague or your boss or, or your employee gave you that card. What impact would it have on you, do you think, for the rest of your day, Frank? I mean, just... Well, first off, it would, you, you would, it would make me relax and smile. Mm. because one of the things that a lot of executives, because I do turnarounds of failing companies, right, is there's so much stress and they take everything too seriously, Mm. right? And so something like that would say, hey, hey, relax, take a deep breath. Yeah. You know, you're valuable, you matter. Now, one thing that that is I'm listening to you talk I worked in the high tech sector for a lot of years. And one of the things that you would see and hear sometimes is someone would come up and they start giving all these platitudes. Mm. But you knew when they said them to you that they're full of crap. They didn't right. believe it. And it was just a bunch of cheerleading because someone said you're supposed to do that. Right. They right? came back from a conference where they heard a recognition speaker and then they started trying to like, wah, 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 wah. yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah, exactly. like you're a puppet all of a sudden. And then it goes away because it wasn't sincere in the first place and nobody believed it. So it didn't go well. Yeah, I hear you. Exactly. I, I used to see that all the time. We used to, when I, was, I worked for NCR and AT&T for a long time. And you always knew when somebody had been to an event. Yes. Because for about three days, they were they would do something new. And then it yeah. was the heck with that. We got to get back to the, the regular stuff. And, it, and, and there was going to be no change. Nothing positive was going to come when you have this constant stop and start. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Now, Sarah, negative conflict is always going to occur. It's always going to occur. Mm-hmm. Correct? When two people are communicating, there's going to be a conflict somewhere. Mm-hmm. But negative conflict rarely comes from the issues it usually, what I understand, and you're the expert here, it comes from negative emotions are triggered by an action or a word, right? So how do you train leaders to walk that fine line? Yeah. Well, um, we've seen so much research out of the difficult conversations, crucial conversations, all the work Brene Brown has done around shames and shame and vulnerability. It's that it's the really comes down to the story we're telling ourselves. If you look at all of that, those books and those thought leaders, a key ingredient in, in, in understanding when conflict goes awry, it's that we each have different stories. And you're right, Frank, we those stories are attached to historical um, experiences either with that person or with other people that the person projects onto them, like all my bosses are like this, or all of the people that I report to who are like you, um, all of the people in an environment in this industry, we, we kind of create blanket statements in it. Anyone who studies Chris Argus's ladder of inference, we jump right up that ladder to having, I know exactly what's going on here without mm-hmm. checking out our data and the story that made us jump up that ladder. So one of the most helpful things we can do, uh, and I don't want to even just say necessarily for the relationship or the other person, because frankly, if we don't do it for ourselves, it's one of those examples of 
you went to a conference and you tried it a few times, but it actually didn't stick. We need to do things for ourselves, but first we have to believe that we're worth doing something for ourselves. And there's a whole lot of professionals walking around them feeling like I am not worth it. I'm not worth working out regularly. I'm not worth eating regularly. I'm not worth taking a break. I'm not worth saying to somebody, no, I will not answer your emails on a weekend. We have to believe we're worth it before we can put up some some roadblocks. And when it comes to, or some barriers, I should say, when it comes to conflict, we have to be willing to say, I'm worth it enough to know if the stories I'm telling myself are absolutely true. Because if I can say that to myself, then I'm able to look very honestly at about the stories I'm telling myself about other people and realize that their main, my story may not be the only story. And then all of a sudden, you have the opportunity to have a true conversation. And it, it comes down to, I don't know if it's my words or somebody else's, take your work seriously, but not yourself so seriously. Take your relationships seriously, but not this moment in your relationships too seriously. It's a micro moment in the big picture of things. And we can get, we can take ourselves and little things that somebody says or a project so seriously. And it completely railroads and shifts where we're healthy, healthy dialogue, healthy, challenging each other. You know, we can flip that on its head and to say, imagine if this person never was honest with me that they disagreed, that they felt there was a better way, that they felt like I was just taking all of the credit, not giving them credit. Imagine if they went and told somebody else that and they didn't tell me that. Wow, I guess I'm pretty lucky that they that they felt worthy, that they trusted me enough to tell me. Right. We can, exactly. we can shift the story because it's about what story am I telling myself? That the person's against me or that person is so for me that they're willing to tell me honestly that they, they do not appreciate how I just talked to them or treated them. I love that. That's great. I've heard you say, Sarah, that logic makes people think, but emotions make people act. Yeah. Now, what is needed? Now, you gave a great example there. and You can expand on that. How do you get moved from the logic to the emotion where the people say, okay, they see me? Well, we are hardwired for connection. Our brain, if you, you know, all the neuroscience, and I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm just going to quickly summarize it and then leave it to the experts if you want to learn more about this. We have three layers of our brains in terms of the evolutionary cycle. It's logic, higher level thinking, that is the last evolution to our brain. We are, our, the, our most reptilian brain is where emotions happen. That's why we ha- can have an emotional react before we know what we're going through, what we're logically processing, and how you could probably see me have an emotion before I even have it fully formed. Then you add a layer to that of social societal expectations, just like what we're talking about. We had growing up, we were told right. our that the technical skills matter more than the, than the heart-based connective skills. Well, the bottom line is we can try to convince ourselves that if I logically analyze the situation, if I just redouble my, effort, you know, my efforts to explain yes. something to somebody, to work away the conflict, all of that is smoke and mirrors. What truly is going to move our relationship forward, a project forward, you know, we talked about, you know, in your introduction, you talked about delighting customers. What makes people feel truly delighted is that you are 100% team Frank, you're 100% team Sarah, and you can't fake that stuff. 
That's like right. You, you know, if I, I mean, by all means, be a hundred percent for you, Frank, be t- team Frank. And I got to be team Sarah and I could also be team Frank. So we got to believe that people are doing the best they can. And therefore we need to be generous with our assumptions. And so if I'm generous with my assumptions about you, then I'm probably able to see how you're, you're, you're trying things that may be outside your comfort zone, may not be working. Our, my emotional pivot can be to curiosity. I might be more likely to ask you a question, check in with how you're doing, acknowledge you, of course, you know, recognize you, yes. um, send you a blog post about something that we just talked about that you think might be helpful for them. You get into action because you're connecting at the deepest level of the human experience. People are, Carl Rogers, who is a humanistic psychologist, wrote a lot of books, 50s and 60s. He's one of my heroes. I I did psychology and family therapy as my educational roots. He talked about we're human beings, not human doings. And, And so if we be, that is where our deepest level of human connection, including human connection to ourselves. And therefore what we do is is a connective experience as opposed to just getting things done, like clearing out the emails or, you know, how many times you've heard somebody says, I sent an email, people interpreted it wrong and it caused all kinds of more problems. Pick up the phone, go and chat with that person, start, send the person a Zoom meeting, look at each other face to face and say, I think we got an issue here, but the issue is not you and me. The issue is this thing. Let's work it out together. Rather than sending an email like the project's off the rails, we need to fix it, that client's angry. No, we got to be with each other. And that's, that creates that sometimes bravery. But man, is it a lot easier to meet with somebody and do it together and experience the, the, the emotional connection of disappointment, of humiliation, I, of, of hurt, of, of, you know, of excitement about possibly being able to turn around that negative customer, customer complaint, as opposed to just engaging our logical brain because our customer or whatever thing may have gone awry doesn't get fixed by our, our brain alone. It gets connected on a much deeper, that's how things stay fixed. That's how people come back from conferences and keep doing what they are, that they thought was a good idea. It has to feel like the right idea. I love that point. When email, when messaging first yeah. became in vogue, and I was in the tech sector at the time, I was mm-hmm. a, a vice president, and there were all these flaming emails that would go back and forth, right? Now we even call them that, flaming emails. Oh, that's such so, a visual description. I, I can only imagine. <laughs> yes. So uh, the CEO, Mr. Exley at NCR, came in, walked in some offices. Now, thank God it wasn't, I wasn't one of them. But he grabbed one of the guys and he said, come with me. And they walked into this other office and they said, Frank, this is Sarah. Sarah, this is Frank. Apparently, the two of you don't know each other. So sit down and figure this out. <laughs> yes. It was, it was, I love that, that, that story. It was just incredible. Now, well, Sarah, you, you know have a book it, it, called, go ahead, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say that it reminds me when in in my last corporate role um, as a senior leader, it's fun. the higher I got in the organization, the the fewer suits I wore and less clicky heels because I realized I it was an us and them. It made me less accessible. And so what I found is when we'd hear on Tuesday morning at senior team how something was going wrong. I, that would be either Friday morning or if I could block the whole day Friday, I'd go physically where that was happening in the hospital sector. And I'd spend time with the people who know why this problem existed. At first, people were very suspicious, like, why Why is somebody from senior exactly. team sniffing around? And is this a trick? Are you trying to catch me out? But then word got around, like, this woman clearly has nothing to do on her, you know, on her Friday. She just hangs around <laughs> with staff. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's, I'm just joking around. That's probably not the story anybody said, or that's not really the, the story I told myself. But the point is... I'm like, how could I come back Monday or the next Tuesday and be able to help solve this problem that we that is a very real problem if I weren't with the people who know why this is happening and get their ideas and their buy-in that there's there's a solution. And it was very uncomfortable for a lot of my colleagues for me to go out, just like you're saying, get two people in a room and talk it through. Same one thing is we got to get out of our office and go spend time where issues, true, real issues are happening in our company. And the things that I learned by simply spending a few hours with people and then the goodwill that that created, people yes. would phone me up and say, you can expect that in a, in a few meetings from now, you guys are going to be talking about this. And here's the one thing that I think can get in front of it. So you get a lot more credibility with boots on the ground leadership. Absolutely. And that could be, that could be a phone call. That could be a Zoom call, like in our current, you know, um, situation. Digital, you know, yeah. Like the, some of the CEOs of, of hospitals, I mean, I work a lot in the hospital sector, which is why I keep describing it. The ones who are tweeting from their own account versus you can tell it's corporate. Those are the ones I respect. I don't work for those people and I respect them more. So, so be present with your people. Be present in their experiences, in their struggles, in their successes, in their, in their, you know, their conflicts, like the case of your CEO, because people remember. And then the next time you want something or you need for something from them, it's a, it's a, an honest we as opposed to an us and them. And us and them can be one of the most toxic um, orientations and yes. organizations. And I love Absolutely. how you and your CEO have led that that charge to be not us and them. It's yeah. me. Absolutely. Now, you have a book called Flip Side of Failing. And you write in there that failing is part of living and high-performing people and organizations lean into failure. And there's the book, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Get online and order it. <laughs> what do these people know that most of us don't? Well, that is such a great question. Oh, my God, yes, amazing question. So they knew what I didn't know when I started writing the book. I was trying to write a book about greatness um, and because the G part of frog. And every single person from 3M scholars, Olympians, Paralympians, uh, you know, philanthropists, world-winning journalists and singer-songwriters, what they taught me in when we asked questions about greatness is that every single one of them had monumental failures. And it is through that failure that they got, that it reinforced why they wanted to do what they, they needed to do, why they were excited about something, not to ditch some of the people who were holding them back and to, you know, surround yourself with your, your, your trusted advisor. 
you know, your trusted advisors and your supports. Um, and I, and although I really wanted to write that book on greatness, in fact, I failed twice in writing it. So I lived my own message here, Frank. I'll be totally honest with you. I wrote two really bad books before I wrote this one. And uh, no, I should say I had two failed attempts at writing this one by other books before that were great, I think. Um, the point is, the only theme that arose in every single interview, completely unsolicited by this seemingly vastly different group of people, but in every demographic category across Canada, was that failure was the gateway to their greatness. So I went, wow, as a recognition expert, that is powerful too, because this means that we can unconditionally recognize ourselves and others despite failure. So here's what I like to say to people who are failure resistant mm -hmm. um, and organizations where we don't have a culture where we can accept failures, obstacles, roadblocks, challenges, is that it is actually through our failures that we build the greatest resiliency, the greatest um, relationships and our greatest resourcefulness. So, you know, organizations at the beginning of COVID who really struggled when they leaned into that to figure out what did we not know about our business before this? How are we disconnected from our customers? How, why are we losing great people even when we took them off of furlough? How come they didn't come back? Those things are actually your greatest opportunity to, to fix some things because it lowered the waterline. And it showed you cracks. Cracks are not necessarily a bad thing. Cracks can be filled. They can be addressed. So, so leaning into failure um, by seeing this in the people that we most admire, um, the people, the mentors and, and people that we put on a pedestal, the, very, it, it, the ironic thing is it actually levels the playing field. And we realize that we have this shared human experience. We all have failures, challenges, roadblocks, obstacles. In fact, we've seen over the last year, this global struggle through our pandemic. It's our uniting factor. It can, people can see it as divisive. We can also see it as the shared human experience. So what if in fact we saw some of the things that, that completely fell apart as, as a lesson, as a, as a possibility that we didn't even realize or want to, to address, but it's been there all along, just, just hiding in the shadows of of, of, of life or of our professional career that seemed on the outside or that we were telling ourselves is all good when there's the cracks have been there all along. Exactly, exactly. It's a time to press the reset button is in crisis. I'm giving a talk in a week and they want to talk about, well, I didn't know this was coming. And what, how did you not know it was coming? Maybe you didn't know this was coming, yeah. but you knew a crisis is not always a worldwide pandemic. A crisis is something you can bring upon yourself. Mm -hmm. So be prepared. And then when it does occur, press that reset button. Mm -hmm. Now, Sarah, we're going to get personal here. Okay. You were at the top of the corporate ladder. You were about as high as you could possibly get in this field that you were in. You had respect, you had money, and you gave it all up. Okay. Tell us the life-altering event that made you do that. Yeah. Um, my son has had many challenges in his life. I mean, he's got so much going for him. He's got a great personality and it's very sensitive and caring. He's had, had some learning exceptionalities, but he also has some learning disabilities. He has ADHD. He's, he had social anxiety, all of those things diagnosed at the age of four before he even started kindergarten. Um, he makes him an easy target. He was bullied on and off throughout his, um, his young career uh, in school. 
And in grade four, I came home from work one day, um, exhausted, uh, having been late at a board meeting. My my feet were tired. I probably hadn't gone to the bathroom all day, skipped lunch, you know, all the things you do to be able to keep up with life as an executive. And my husband said to me, my daughter's still sitting, eating, picking away at her dinner at the table. She loves, loves it to be two-hour marathons. And my husband, with this deep furrow in his brow, he said, something is wrong. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but could you go up and check on Justin? So uh, as you can probably imagine, when you're tired, you know what it's like coming home at yes. the end of an exhausting day. You don't, you just want to put your feet up, watch cereal, binge, watch Netflix and eat a lot of carbs. But you know, people are people in your life that you love are worth it. And I climbed the stairs and I opened his room and I just had this feeling wash over me. You know, that feeling, Frank, that when somebody you love and you know so deeply, they don't have to say a word. You just know something's very wrong. Exactly. I walked in there and I sat beside him on the bed and it's dark. He's sort of hunched shoulders, not saying anything. And I just, just asked him a question. Hey, how was your day, bud? And really quietly, he shares, it was a bad day for bullies. And at first, I'm really confused. I thought we had dealt with this. I didn't think this was an issue he was dealing with. We haven't heard about this this school year. The, uh, by this point, my eyes are kind of getting accustomed to the, to the darkness. And the only light that's coming in his room is from the street lamp. And it's illuminating his arms. It's got, he's got red on his arms. And I'm, again, I'm confused. So I turn on the light and I realize he has cut marks up and down both of his arms, just little oh thin God. marks. Mm-hmm. And I know from my psychology background that when somebody self-harms, it's not an attention-seeking thing. It is a, my emotional landscape is what I've experienced is so painful. I have to get it out through physical pain. I wrapped my arms around him and I said, I'm so sorry, buddy. I love you. We're going to fix this. I promise you, we love you. And I, you know, I, I try to reassure him that it's going to be okay. But when he pulls away from me, Frank, he looked in my eyes. And in that moment, it was the first time my 10 year old son had ever looked at me and didn't believe this time that I could fix it, that Mm -hmm. I was the hero, that I could save the day. He did not believe it was worth it. And he didn't think that anything was going to get any better. He wanted to be alone. So I go downstairs and I told my husband what I had just discovered. And we both had this huge shame cycle going around. I mean, how could I miss this? I'm the head of respectful workplaces at work and I'm a mediator and, you know, I'm, a, I'm trained in psychology. How could I miss this? My husband, he's a, he's a teacher. How could he not see the signs? He works with at-risk kids. He's the one who has the trusted adult program. We both felt like we had failed him in the biggest monumental way that we could and that we had all the skills, all of the experience that one would need and we still missed it. So what was wrong with us as parents? Um, Found it, I mean, to, to just sort of quickly, you know, wrap up that part of our life. It's just, we didn't know what to do. I, I phoned every principal and teacher and, you know, person that he, he spent time with. And I found out he was bullying, being bullied everywhere except our house and one other friend's house, uh, which only just added to the shame cycle. And we realized we needed to make a huge change. Um, a, th- a couple, well, I mean, we obviously, you know, tried to make as many of those changes as possible. One of them being we need, we realized how little we were tuning into each other at the dinner table. So we started recognizing each other every single day, every t- tiny little infinitesimal insight of greatness in each other, all of three of us, who, all four of us in the house. And that helped a little bit. It helped to build a bit more resiliency and hope. 
but it was, it was sitting on my yoga mat about three weeks later that I had this vision of a different life, quitting my job, moving to a place in the country, having a beautiful outbuilding where I could, I was, I could visually see on my mat in people in front of me. <laughs> I was having this, like this hologram right there on the mat of people who were motivated and I was facilitating and I was in front of this hearth and, you know, we were just, and I realized in that moment, this, this is what I meant to do for the rest of my life. And so I went home and I told my husband, which completely freaked him out. If we're not dealing with enough crisis, sure, let's completely uproot our lives and start all over again. But, you know, fortunately, he's used to wacky ideas and being married to me. So he just like, okay, well, let's just sort of live with this possibility. And sure enough, it took six months, but we found a place. We sold everything, our house, our cottage. We got, we got debt free, by the way, right away. We said, we got to get rid of our extra property. We got to spend more time at home. So we really started taking off the pressure valve that a lot of us in senior leadership roles put on our own shoulders. We don't have to have that, right? Absolutely. I had to really face some things about my own ego that was fixate, which was, which I was um, needing to let go of. And the huge pivot was, quitting my job, starting my own business, putting up my flag as a professional speaker that I always wanted to do. I'd been speaking since I was in in grade school and I never thought that I could do it as a career, but I'm able to now have helped my, my son is well enough that he's not only off antidepressants, off anti-anxiety, he's strong, healthy, happy, um, he now does competitive rowing. He put himself out there for that. My daughter's happy and healthy. You know, we, we have, and we are debt free and we live in a beautiful place on the water in Niagara wine country. We never would have been able to create this life for ourselves had a fear of my son's life not been on the line. You can do really brave things when you feel like you have no plan B and uh, he shares with me that he feels like it was the best thing that could have ever happened to him because he realized about making really good choices about friendships and about, you know, he needs to believe in himself first. And, and I mean, he doesn't always have flawless, you know, of that because he's a teenager, but he makes them very, and my daughter is able to stand up for people and being bullied, particularly in cyberspace in a way that she may or may not have, felt so strongly about had she not seen what her brother went through. And I certainly, you know, he's given me the gift by him being recovered from his mental health crisis of of precipitated by bullying. I'm able to now to write about it in the book and share it from the stage. And it's amazing how many people are living in shamed silence about bullying at work and in their kids and in their lives and that they've never dealt with that trauma. So that was our big pivot. That was our, oh my God moment. That was, that was everything for us. That I've heard that story before and it touches my heart every time I hear it. And that is probably the most courageous thing that someone can do that has reached the level that you were at and to say, my children, my family is more important. I'm going to walk away. Major, major kudos to you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're just about out of time. Sarah, with, after all you've been through and all that you've accomplished, mm-hmm. what last words do you want to leave with the viewers? Um, I guess two things. One is everyone's doing the best they can. 
And that means you're doing the best you can. So, you know, just like we talked earlier, take life seriously, take your work seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. Um, And that opens all kinds of possibilities, including that's the next piece I want to just leave with folks is recognize people as if it didn't matter that, that what their reaction was or what people might think. We often hold ourselves back. We filter ourselves because we think it's playing favorites. People may think it's insincere. What if I can't keep it up? You know what? If, the, if it comes from a good place of, of, of healthy intention, that none of that matters. Because what matters is that you see greatness in that moment and it's worth the risk to acknowledge it before it goes away and everybody gets too busy to notice it in a, in a 30 seconds from now, just lean into it and acknowledge it because this is the true human connective opportunity and we need it now more than ever. Absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sarah McVannell. And I picked her on purpose to be the last guest on my show. Civility and kindness and understanding and recognizing the goodness in others is so important, particularly at this point in history, with this COVID crisis, with the unrest, with the unemployment, with all the issues that are dividing us. In the United States, we just had an election, and we are very, very divided, and it's time to come together. It takes one single act of kindness by one person at a time to start the change, to make the improvement as Sarah has mentioned, one person at a time performing one single act of kindness. It's time to have dialogue, not debate, not discussion, dialogue to try and understand each other. Have a dialogue with a family member or a friend who doesn't see things the way you do. Have that dialogue and try and understand where are they coming from. What we're going to find is we have more things in common that unite us than we have that divides us. Understanding does not mean agreeing, but we can disagree without the anger, the mocking, and the vitriol. As Sarah told us today, it's our job, it's our responsibility to find the good in people and recognize that goodness and recognize their greatness. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as I said, we are just about out of time. I want to thank Sarah one more time for sharing that inspiring story of her life and the challenges that she has faced. No matter what life throws at you, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to do three things. Please do these three things. Look up, get up, never ever give up. Pick up the pieces and start moving forward. And better times and better people will come into your life. If you want to know more about Sarah McVannell and you can't contact her directly, contact me and I will make sure that she gets the information. If you miss this show or any parts of our other shows, they will be available or they are available on demand later today. And you can get those on demands at any number of locations, including uh, iHeartRadio now, Google, and Alexa. One more time to the 220,000 listeners who have come from 42 countries who have listened to my show. Thank you. You mean the world to me, and I hope you'll continue to follow. And let me leave you with this, ladies and gentlemen. None of us are in this alone. 
The secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. And today, Sarah showed us where many of those rocks are. I look forward to seeing you on television. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for tuning into Life Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life changing week. The Good Cup.